I've watched her family and the community really persevere in not only seeking justice, but also connecting to people. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Right now, there is an exhibition at the Speed Museum in Louisville, Kentucky, that is gaining international attention for a truly tragic reason. That's because the show, titled Promise, Witness, Remembrance, is dedicated to the memory of Breonna Taylor, the 26-year-old black woman who was killed by the police during a raid of her Louisville home on March 13, 2020. A former emergency medical technician whose unjustified slaying led to widespread protests and the nationwide Say Her Name campaign, Taylor has become something of a muse for some of the country's most prominent socially engaged artists, whose tributes to her have made her a symbol of the protest movement. Those tributes, by artists like Hank Willis Thomas, Maria Magdalena Campos-Pons, and Theastra Gates, now fill the exhibition at the Speed, where the centerpiece is the already iconic portrait of Taylor by the artist Amy Sherald that originally graced the September cover of Vanity Fair. Already celebrated for its emotional power, this show was organized by Allison Glenn, Associate Curator of Contemporary Art at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. So how did a museum exhibition dedicated to a victim of police violence come to be? To find out, I'm very pleased to have Allison Glenn on the show today. Thanks very much for coming on The Art Angle, Allison. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. So if I'm correct, I believe you're from Detroit. You work at the Crystal Bridges Museum in Bentonville, Arkansas. And the exhibition that we're going to talk about today is in Louisville, Kentucky. So where are you talking to me from today? I am calling in from my office at Crystal Bridges. Okay. Very nice. The acclaimed museum that was founded by the Walmart heiress, Alice Walton, that has been completely revitalizing the way the contemporary art and art history is seen in the Midwest. An incredible museum. How, how long have you been there for? I've been here for a little over three years. So I want to um, talk to you about your show in Kentucky. And your exhibition is celebrated for its powerful contents, but it's probable that the most extraordinary thing about it is that it simply exists in the first place. So before we get into the show, let's go to the tragic inspiration. Can you please tell me, when did you first hear the name Breonna Taylor? When did you become aware of her killing? Unfortunately, that's the way that her name filtered into so many of our consciousnesses. I would say that my memory and the news coverage perhaps are conflated, namely because I have spent so much time reading and rereading news coverage in order to approach this story so that I could create an exhibition around this moment. So my memory might not serve me correct here, but sometime between March and May of 2020. And of course, there was something unusual about this case, because as horrible as it is to say, there are police-involved killings routinely. So very rarely do they inspire museum exhibitions. Usually there is no conduit between what happens in police-involved shootings that you see across cities across America and museums. So what is it that made her death different? I would agree that it's very rare that incidents of police brutality inspire 
contemporary responses, much less guilty verdicts. So perhaps that's a good place to start in this conversation. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you Mm -hmm. why this particular story, along with the story of Derek Chauvin's murder of George Floyd, which did not include gun violence, but is definitely police brutality. I also don't know why in this moment between this time that I first mentioned last year that people in the United States started to respond and started to listen and started Mm -hmm. to care outside of these communities. I don't know why. Perhaps it's because of these kind of intersecting pandemics, coronavirus, and then this ongoing incidences of police brutality and gun violence in communities that maybe people had time to pay attention, which is kind of a melancholic response. But perhaps that is why people started to take notice. I can't tell you because For me, this conversation didn't start with Breonna Taylor or George Floyd or Ahmaud Aubrey, like it might have for the general public. How did you come to curate this show? Where did the idea for the show come from? The director of the Speed Museum reached out and he had been in conversation with Amy and the Ford Foundation and was really very much interested, along with Amy Sherald, in bringing the portrait to Louisville. So in that process... Mm -hmm. They received my name from a few recommendations in the field, including Amy herself. And I had never met the director. I had never been to Louisville before, but he reached out to me and invited me to think through how the portrait might have a presence at the Speed Art Museum. And one of the most exciting Mm -hmm. things about his email was that he had already identified and secured funding He'd already identified and secured Tamika Palmer's contribution and support, which was really important, namely because, as I mentioned before, I hadn't been to Lula before. I'm I'm not from that place. And this is such a personal story that really requires Brianna Taylor's mother to be at the table. And because the museum saw that as a really important part of this project, it, to me, felt like it was appropriate for me to step in and act as guest curator. To go back a little bit further into the past, you know, you mentioned Amy Sherald's portrait. And, you know, after Breonna Taylor's death, as is so often the case with awful deaths that reach the national consciousness, her image took on this strange new life of its own. You know, I think the photo that was very widely circulated in the initial stories of the huge outcry was the one of her standing in her EMT uniform at a graduation ceremony, you know, holding her diploma and a bouquet of yellow roses. And then some other images that were circulating were selfies that she took that were, you know, casually posed that nobody would ever expect to be in the pages of newspapers and magazines. But then something changed in August of last year when Amy Sherald's portrait was put on the cover of Vanity Fair. So how did Amy Sherald come to paint her portrait in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. And I appreciate you mentioning too, this kind of circulation of images because these images that were in the media were so personal, are so personal. So Amy was commissioned by Tanahesi Coates as the guest editor of Vanity Fair to create the portrait. As I understand it, there was a very short period of time that she had to create the portrait, which is not typically the way that she works. She's the kind of painter that produces just a certain amount of paintings a year. And so the expedited timeline in creating this portrait was something that she's mentioned before. 
But I can imagine, and this is not me speaking for her, but I can imagine that she also felt really compelled to do it and really grateful for the opportunity to create this depiction. And so the timeline itself was not a challenge, was not insurmountable. And of course, Amy Sherald is best known for creating the official portrait of First Lady Michelle Obama, which means that, you know, according to some kind of incredibly cruel poetry, that she has both painted one of America's most protected and most honored women, and now with Breonna Taylor's portrait, one of its least protected and least honored women. How do you understand the way that Amy Sherald approached this portrait? How do you understand the artistic choices that went into it? Amy worked closely with Breonna Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer, and also with a designer that she chose to create the dress that the model for the portrait was going to wear. She also is interested in blue. So I know this from working with Tamika Palmer. Brianna's favorite colors are Kentucky blue and purple. So I can imagine that that blue is really evocative of one of Brianna's favorite colors. So really thinking about the portrait as encompassing a lot of presence and also a lot of future projection or speculation. One of the most tender moments in the portrait for me is that Amy included the engagement ring that Brianna's partner, Kenny, planned to give her. And this is something that's been really important and at the center of the exhibition and all the conversations. The world learned of Brianna Taylor and her passing. Brianna Taylor's family and friends knew her in her life, right? So we're talking about 26 years of a life and not just one horrible incident that changed the course of her family's life forever and her life forever. And so there's a lot of nuance that's really important to be careful with in this story. Amy was definitely very careful in her tender portrayal that includes the engagement ring that reminds us this is a story about love as much as it is about loss. And whether it's the love of her family, the love of her partner, the love of her friends. And it's important that we focus on that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one thing that when you look at the portrait, it's not about death. It's about her life. It's suffused with so much authority and assuredness. It's an unforgettable portrait. And so I wonder, how did you go about building a show out around this portrait that brought in the context that you were talking about? How did you decide to accompany this portrait in the show? Well, I knew that there were so many different kind of intersecting priorities with this exhibition and that with the Community Advisory Committee, you know, they had a certain idea of how they wanted this exhibition to unfold or how their advice and kind of feedback could help me shape my curatorial framework. I also knew that the Speed Museum had certain ambitions for this exhibition. What I did first was speak with her mother. After listening to the Speed Museum staff and getting a sense of the really good intentions of the museum, but also understanding that this is an exhibition and within the framework of an exhibition, only so much work can be done, but it really could set the stage or be a platform or a scaffold upon which many different things can happen that could potentially change the course of how the museum works from now into the future. And so knowing that there was so much ambition and so much intentionality around what this exhibition could do, I wanted to get really clear. 
And so I spoke with her mother and I asked what the exhibition meant to her and her daughter's legacy. And she replied back in a very clear way what the exhibition could do and kind of three things she hoped it would do. And so from those three things, I interpreted them into the title of the exhibition, which is also the curatorial framework. So promise, witness, and remembrance. There's been different coverage around how this exhibition came to be in terms of themes and titles. It's not that Ms. Palmer gave me the exhibition title or that she gave me the themes, but she shared with me her thoughts. And from that, I interpreted and kind of created the framework. So the first section is promise. And promise for me, you know, you beautifully said you kind of anchored Amy's practice in these two publicly known figures, which, as you said, are the most and least protected women, perhaps, in the United States. And I think we could expand upon that. The question I really wanted to get at with the promise section is a nation, right? And this idea of a nation and what citizenship affords a citizen and what symbols of a nation articulate these freedoms or this protection. And so really looking at these symbols, the preamble to the Constitution, the American flag, the military, voting rights, and national anthems, and how artists have perhaps problematized these symbols to get at the core, which is that the United States inherently in our actions do not value as everyone is equal in the way that we promise it with these various symbols of our country. And that got at Mm -hmm. how we got here with the story of Breonna Taylor having a national platform because of the fact that she was murdered in the hands of the police and her family did not get justice. In -hmm. the second section is the witness section. And I anticipated that there would be many first-time guests to the museum. And so really wanted to peel back a lot of the more conceptual framework that was laid out in the first section and just drive home what artists do because some people might wonder, why did Amy Sherald paint this portrait of Breonna Taylor? And so just to kind of show that artists help us understand the contemporary moment. And I wanted to really anchor this moment in a longer legacy and longer conversation of organized protests for Black lives in the United States to support the larger kind of question that I brought forth in the beginning of our conversation, which is, for many people, incidents of police brutality do not start with Breonna Taylor or George Floyd. And incidents of state brutality against Black and brown communities in the United States has a long history. And so combining works like Terry Adkins' Muffled Drums, which is from his recital for Du Bois, that points to the 1917 silent protest parade that was organized by Du Bois and the NAACP that was one of kind of the first Black organized protests for Black lives in the United States. And to have that in conversation with protest photographs taken by documentary photographers who were in Louisville over the course of the protests in 2020 Mm -hmm. and 2021. So to show different groupings of artworks that are Artists interrogating the contemporary moment, and these artworks are both timely and enduring. The final section is remembrance. That was an opportunity to create a dialogue around these intersecting pandemics of police brutality and gun violence in the United States and put Amy's portrait in conversation with a work by Carrie James Marshall that was created in the early 90s, 
a film by John Cesare Goff that was created in 2015. So again, really anchoring the portrait in these other practices or in conversation with these other practices that are identifying and articulating similar messages. You mentioned how you were working in conversation with Breonna Taylor's mother, but you also were working with an advisory panel. Adding another layer, the advisory panel consisted of people in the art field, but beyond that, people in the art field who have been touched in their lives by gun violence, by tragedy. How did you assemble this panel and what did that mean to you? Why was it important that you had voices and perspectives that had this experience. When I started visiting Louisville and speaking with the community, I realized just how serious this exhibition was going to be. And of course I understood the impact, but then it just became much more paramount. And I realized that given the very short timeline that I needed a group of experts that I could trust, that knew me and could help guide the research that I was doing and guide the kind of deep dives and curatorial framework and connections I was trying to make with the collection, with contemporary practices. I knew it was going to happen to the painting before everyone else did. I knew that it was going to be co-acquired. So there was an early gesture that thought about that co-acquisition of the painting by Namak and by the Speed Museum. And so I wanted to point to local and national in everything that I did. Brianna Taylor is not the only story. It's not an isolated occurrence. And so all of these people that I enlisted, I know. And all these people I enlisted, they're either friends of mine or people I've worked with before. It's important to note that it wasn't difficult to find these people, right? It wasn't difficult to engage with these people. And their role was to really give further insight from their perspective, either as artists who have experienced gun violence or police brutality and have made work about it, like Hank Willis Thomas, John Cesare Goff, or like Theaster Gates. Theaster, until this point, was kind of the cornerstone of the art world engaging with incidents of police brutality. I knew that I was seeking guidance and seeking input on the best way forward. We're considering audience, we're considering publics. And so to work in a silo and perhaps to not seek consult in my practice as a curator, I would argue leads to less successful outcomes. So if the work that I do is engaging with publics, having multiple perspectives in at any point of the curatorial practice and of the conceiving of the exhibition can only make the exhibition stronger because this incident is not an isolated occurrence because it's something that happens and continues to happen to black and brown communities in the United States. I wanted to have representation of people in the art world who have either made work about this, who they themselves have experienced this in their families or communities, or also people who are not in the art world, but who have had high-profile police brutality cases. And so it was a different kind of approach, but I couldn't imagine occupying that space alone. It seems that this show, at its heart, it has a question of communities the community of Breonna Taylor's family and her circle. And then there's obviously the art community. 
At the same time, there's also a third community, which is the protest community. And in Louisville, there has been a real outpouring of both grief and also creativity in Jefferson Square, where a memorial was created for Breonna Taylor that includes a significant number of artworks. Did you engage with this protest community as well in putting together the show? I believe there were some representatives on the Louisville Steering Committee. There were representatives from Until Freedom and other organizers. I was able to select photographs from five photographers who were at the protests and in that way, yes, engaged with the community. Also, on the Saturday after we opened to the public, a group of organizers from Breway, which is one of the organizers of the protest movement, came to visit the exhibition. And afterwards, I was able to have lunch with them and talk with them. And so at different points along the way, I did engage with the protest community, yes. And do you know how have they responded to the show? What has their reception of the show been so far? You know, there's so many different people in the protests and so many different kind of factions of the protests. And because I wasn't involved, it's challenging to speak for them. But I can tell you what I saw. There were people from different parts of the protest movement at the opening day, which was very exciting. And I was able to meet some of them and take photographs with some of them. And one of the biggest bit of feedback that I received was that people felt visible. And it was really exciting to watch people find themselves in the photographs. Of course, John Cherry, who I would say he's probably one of the leading voices of photographers who are documenting the protests. John has been really wonderful in kind of connecting me to people and making certain things visible to me that I might not know because I'm not from Louisville and I don't live in Louisville. His contribution to the exhibition is a portrait of Travis Najdi. And as I was doing a lot of research around the story of Breonna Taylor and the protest movement, I realized that there were multiple incidences of gun violence, both at the protests and unrelated. And so Travis Najdi was one of the young men who was organizing the protests and he was shot and killed in an unrelated incident. Also, Tyler Girth, who were posthumously exhibiting one of his photographs, he was shot and killed at the protests. You had asked early on, how did I think about the portrait and how did I build an exhibition around the portrait? It's also thinking about the story of Breonna Taylor, which includes everything around that, right? So the protests themselves, the people, and on and on. And now the story of Breonna Taylor, as we all know, is, is decidedly unresolved. Even though her death was ruled a homicide, none of the police officers who were involved in her murder were convicted. This is still a sore wound in the community that may never heal. I wonder, how does the show engage with this feeling of anger, this feeling of an unresolved crime against one of these members of the community? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if it engages with anger. I would say that what I received from the community, including Brianna's family, is an idea of consistent perseverance. So, of course, there's anger in so much of what happened, but what's not being communicated is anger. What's being communicated is perseverance and a desire for justice. And so, probably one of the greatest ways 
that this perseverance is captured in the exhibition is in the timeline that Tamika Palmer wrote about Brianna's life. During the process, once I received feedback from the national panel, the Louisville Steering Committee, and Amy and I had a few conversations, I presented the proposal to Tamika Palmer. And I mentioned to her that I really wanted to have a timeline in the exhibition, which is a, you know, it's a common thing to have timelines. And I was hoping the timeline could tie the story back to Brianna Taylor. And I also knew that I was not the person to write it. And so when I presented this idea, I assumed that we would maybe workshop a few writers' names. And right away, her mom said, I'll write it. And that was perfect. There's no way that this could have happened any differently. I really also decided that in the gallery that has the portrait of Brianna, that that's the only thing that would be in there, the timeline and the portrait. And so in a sense, there's an exhibition within the exhibition, right? If you've come to the Speed Museum to see the portrait and to understand the story of Brianna Taylor through her mother's words, you can do that. If you've come to understand the exhibition as a concept or as an idea or as a position, you can also do that. There's space for all of it. And I would say that the timeline captures perseverance. And I'll tell you why. The story of this person in the way that her mother tells it is the closest truth, I think, to who she is. It's the closest to the truth that any of us can get. It's closer than this exhibition idea. It's closer than any news accounts because it's the story of her daughter's life. And it doesn't start with the incident on March 13th, it ends with it, which is essentially where the exhibition picks up. Mm. I've watched her family and the community really persevere in not only seeking justice, but also connecting to people. You know, when you're able to understand that she was a person and that her mom's biggest concern was that she was going to be engaging with people who had COVID because she was an emergency medical technician and she worked in the ER. It gives you a different perspective on a person and perhaps not what we receive from news outlets, right? Not what we receive from outside of her circle. Hmm. Now, you know, a typical museum show takes months, if not years, to assemble, including the research, the um, securing of loans, just getting into the a slot in the exhibition calendar of an institution can be a huge ordeal. How long did it take you to pull this museum show together? Well, I started officially working on it December 7th of 2020, and we opened April 7th, 2021. So that's very fast. Very, very <laughs> fast. <laughs> most of the artists and most of the lenders couldn't do enough in terms of wanting to engage with the subject matter and wanting to do something and wanting to be a part of the art world's response to this tragic killing. Now, of course, the New York Times' Pulitzer Prize-winning critic, Holland Cotter, wrote an astonishing rave review of this show where he really held it up as an example of how museums should be more reactive to their current historic moment and how they really can be more effective in engaging on a meaningful level with what audiences are concerned with. What did you learn from putting together this show? Do you think that this is a really new model for curation that can be spread around and picked up again by other curators and other institutions? 
Yes, but. I think the yes, first and foremost, I think that museums can respond more quickly. I think that certain museums are better poised to respond more quickly. But I think that this is a great opportunity for us to think about how we build out calendars, right? Because oftentimes museums are planning three, four, five years in advance. And so the schedule might be done for 2025 and we're in 2021. So I think it's about creating space for more nimble projects should they arise, and they always do. I think it's also about how museums are operating, you know? So there is an opportunity to all rethink what responding in the moment can do for conversations that museums are trying to have about the contemporary. And this is my but, but I think it's going to take a radical rethinking across the board. Because if some museums decide to create space you know, you're still going to run into challenges with loans and timelines. For me, it's a decision that would have to happen across the board. I think that in this particular instance, the fact that we pulled it off is, in hindsight, it's such a shock. But being in it, I can just say that I was working towards the end goal. And at the time, I wasn't really thinking about the time. You mentioned before that this show sits at the intersection of two pandemics, the pandemic of gun violence and also the coronavirus pandemic. And it seems that the kind of the way that this show came together is also a product of the pandemic where things that didn't seem to be possible, timelines that didn't seem to be possible in the past have now just through sheer necessity seem to be possible. And so a lot of people are seeing these incredible, you know, bursts of speed and innovation that have heroically managed to keep things afloat during the pandemic. Do you think that this is a viable way of curating a show? Do you want to curate a show like this again anytime soon? First, I want to just share that the intersecting pandemics are gun violence, police brutality, and the coronavirus. So those three distinct things. I also would agree with you that we're radically rethinking our relationship to possibilities in this hopefully post-coronavirus pandemic world that we're living in. I agree with many of the arguments that things should not return to normal because normal was so inherently flawed. And so as we're moving through and rethinking the way that we operate, I do think that this is a model that provides a framework or provides perhaps some insight into what it means for museums to radically rethink the ways that they work. Would I want to curate an exhibition like this again? Yes, but now I have the information. I know a little bit more because I experienced the pitfalls. And just to give you an idea of one way that the Speed Museum had to radically rethink and was extremely receptive, they have, as I understand it, never deinstalled the Dutch and Flemish collection entirely. And it took a very engaged and committed registrar to make that happen. And so it also takes the right people within institutions to want to do the additional work to figure out how to do things that haven't been done before. So it happens at every level. And I think you have to have key players on board at every level in order to make things happen differently. Well, I want to say congratulations to you on what is really a powerful and historic exhibition. I know that you're in the middle of installing your next show. So what, what is your next show going to be about? 
Well, I'm opening a outdoor sculpture by Rashid Johnson, and it's a five-year long-term loan. It's a site-specific sculpture that is one of his pyramidal structures. It's 17 by 17 by, I think, 20. It has three levels. It will have shea butter, live plants, different ceramics. The artist made in his studio. The second level has a scaffold, and that is for performers to perform from. So essentially, there's a trap door in the back of the sculpture, and someone can climb in and perform from within it. The color of the sculpture is midnight blue, and the color is in reference to a bruise, which is for Rashid evidence of healing. And so it does also speak to this moment. It will be on view in our North Forest here at Crystal Bridges for five years. Wow. Well, I think within five years, everybody should have the vaccine and be able to travel again. So that's a great incitement or inducement to come to Crystal Bridges. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Allison. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, make sure to check out Shattering the Glass Ceiling, our exciting podcast mini-series focusing on inspiring women in the art world, concluding this week. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. 